You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. I'm Dr. Miriam Brand, and my friend Melissa again is here with me. Hello. And today we're going to talk about Philo of Alexandria. Now, in the last episode, we finished talking about Ben Sira, and we just need to realize that while they're both Jewish thinkers, there are very large spaces between them, both in terms of time and in terms of geography. So uh, if Ben Sira was around 200 BCE, Philo lives around 20 BCE to 50 CE. So that means he dies about 20 years before the destruction of the Second Temple. So while Philo's living during the Second Temple period and Ben Sira lives during the Second Temple period, Ben Sira lives in the, let's say, the middle of the Second Temple period. Philo of Alexandria is at the very end of the Second Temple period. Also, the way they saw themselves, the way they saw Judaism was very different because of where they lived and not just what time they lived. Ben Sira was very much a Judean. He lived in Judea and he was a part of that world, whereas Philo lived in Alexandria. As we call him Philo of Alexandria. He lived in Alexandria. Alexandria had a really significant Jewish community. It was so significant that it's considered to be behind the creation of the Septuagint. And Philo himself relies heavily on the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Bible. It's a question whether he could even read or understand Hebrew. However, what he was very well versed in were the works of Plato. He was what they call him, today they call him middle Platonist. In other words, he's between Plato himself and the Neoplatonic thought, which is its own Thing. It's not a simple continuation of Platonic thought. So Philo bases himself on Plato in terms of how he thinks philosophically. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to reconcile Greek thought and Jewish scripture. So he has an issue with the idea that you have in Greek thought, of course, you find things or you're supposed to find things out through deduction, through logical thought. But Philo, as a good Jew, believes in revelation and scripture and God who revealed himself to Moses. And Philo actually will interpret the Bible. When we say he interprets the Bible, he's interpreting the Septuagint. He is using the Greek Bible. And in fact, he cites, there's something called the letter of Aristas, which talks about the mirac- kind of the miraculous origins of the Septuagint. And Philo points to that as saying, and therefore we can rely on the Greek as essentially the words of Moses is really just like the Torah. And when I say Septuagint, in this case, we're talking about the Greek translation of the five books of Moses, as opposed to the Greek translation of the other books that were translated later and in pieces. And when we talk about, of course, when we usually talk about the Septuagint, we mean the whole thing. We mean the five books of Moses, plus all the different books that were translated at some point and were included in the Alexandrian Jewish Bible. When Philo of Alexandria quotes the Bible in general, he's talking about the five books of Moses. So what was Philo doing? His works were essentially philosophical exegesis, philosophical interpretation of scriptures that reflect what Alexandrians thought. You know, there's the kind of a philosophical approach of uh, Platonists and the like as its kind of basis. What was Philo of Alexandria's significance to Jews and to non-Jews? Well, to Jews outside of Alexandria, he was not particularly significant at all. And in fact, Jews did not keep Philo's works. Who kept Philo's works? Christians. Why? Because 
Christians, the early Christians like Philo, were trying to reconcile Greek thought with scripture. And so for Christians, Philo was very valuable. Here's someone who is honestly trying to understand scripture in a way that works with the Greek thought that everyone is taking for granted. And so Philo's books become very important to early Christians. However, Philo himself is very Jewish. He's centered on the Jewish people, on Judaism itself. The lifestyle he describes when he talks about Judaism is a traditional one. He has a whole dialogue with his nephew. His nephew becomes actually very important in the Roman Empire. And he writes to him to try to convince him to essentially to stay Jewish. Don't become some kind of apostate. It's important to be Jewish. It's not just that, obviously. Wherever Philo turns, he's going to bring philosophical arguments. There is a difference of opinion between scholars. Is Philo a philosopher? who does his philosophizing through exegesis of Jewish texts? Or is he an exegete? Is he a biblical commentator who uses philosophical ideas to understand the text? I'm not going to get into this whole discussion now. Uh, it would be relevant if we had an answer, right? This is very hard to just decide one way or the other. I'm going to put that question to the side and we're going to delve into how, what Philo talks, what Philo says about sin and Philo's idea of what it means to have an inclination. Now, if you recall, when we talked two episodes ago about Ben Siro chapter 15, we talked about how people have a complete choice in what they do based on their character. Or, or they have a character, they have a yetzel, right? Not necessarily a yetzerah, not necessarily a bad yetzer, but a yetzer. God has given them into the power of their yetzer. However, in the final analysis, the choice is theirs. Now, we saw that probably in the original version of Ben Sira chapter 15, Ben Sira has not said whether we're talking about a good inclination or a bad inclination. And it's very possible that what he means is you can have some kind of character, you could have a bad character or a good character, regardless, it is your choice in how to behave. And we're going to come back to this idea later when we talk about how the evil inclination plays out in Dead Sea Scrolls. But for right now, what are we talking about? Philo of Alexandria also is dealing with sin, the origin of sin, human nature, and also wanting to distance God from the responsibility for sin. Remember that that was one of our central problems with sin. If God created me and God doesn't want me to sin, why do I sin? It's one piece, one problem of theodicy of justifying God in the face of evil. And Philo needs to deal with that problem as well. So with no further ado, let's take a look at how far Philo is willing to go in order to limit God's providence in terms of the origin of sin. So I'm reading from On Providence. It is not that God is responsible for everything. Nay, the attributes of his nature are altogether good and benevolent. On the contrary, the nature of matter and that of vice is a product of deviation and not caused by God. In other words, and this is a fairly platonic idea. God created only good things. And then the corruption is not from God. The nature of matter, meaning the fact that matter is corruptible, in other words, matter, you know, dissolves, it doesn't stay perfect forever, and vice itself, sin, those are the product of deviation and they're not caused by God. God created everything perfect. Now, another approach that Philo uses to distance God, now Philo, remember when we talked about Ben Sira and how Ben Sira's contextual doesn't always agree, Philo, we have more of a desire to try and make everything fit because Philo is supposed to be a philosopher. Everything's supposed to be fit. Everything's supposed to be logical. However, it's not that way. We have different opinions. However, in general, he has a very pessimistic idea of human inclination. So 
Another approach that Philo uses to distance God from moral evil is to describe it like Ben Sira does as inherently human. In other words, sin is part of the human condition. On flight and finding, I'm reading from passages 79 to 80, Philo describes the nature of sin in a way that really mirrors what we saw in Ben Sira 15. Accordingly, it is not right to say that any wrongs committed with secret hostility and with guile and as the result of premeditation originate from God. They originate from us ourselves. Now, I'm going to repeat that because it sounds like he's starting with Ben Sira's argument saying, don't say my sin is from God, right? That's what Ben Sira started with. He's saying, accordingly, it is not right to say that any wrongs committed with secret hostility and with guile and as a result of premeditation originate from God. They originate from us ourselves. Now, we're going to see this as a continuing chain of apparently people say this, right? Apparently, there are people who are saying this that my sin is somehow coming from God. We saw it reflected in Metzira. We see it reflected in Philo. We're going to see it reflected in some other Second Temple works. This is apparently an idea that's going around. But Philo, like Metzira, argues with that idea. He said, for as I have said, the treasuries of evil things are in ourselves. With God are those of good things only. Whosoever therefore takes refuge, that is, whosoever blames not himself but God for his sins, let him be punished by being deprived of the refuge, which is a place of deliverance and safety for supplicants only, namely the altar. Okay, in other words, they shouldn't be able to sacrifice. So two elements of Bensir's argument in 15 can be found in this passage. So one is the, what we talked about before, that the audience is trying to blame God for their sins. However, when Philo says that no bad thing can originate from God, he's different from Bensira. Bensira said God would not create what he hates. Because for Philo to say no bad thing comes from God, that already creates a problem that Ben Sira probably wouldn't even know what to do with it. Philo has a whole system of thought already where, you know, Platonic thought, where there's this idea that there's this good, perfect something, and then the, the corruption is what causes bad, the corruption of the perfect. Whereas Ben Sira doesn't see the world that way. And for Ben Sira to say God didn't create bad things, how can you say that? Everything is created by God. So, but he just says, well, God would not create what he hates, so he's not making you sin. So Philo is actually saying, no, no, you can't blame God for anything evil. How can something created to be perfect become capable of becoming corrupt? Right. So that's actually a problem that Plato has. And then Philo is able to kind of rely on what Plato does while also interpreting a passage in Genesis, which we're going to see. But Plato brings in like there's the main creator and then there are these little minor creators that from them is the corrupt, the, the fact that things kind of um, are corruptible in a material way. Right. Because you're right. A perfect thing should not be corruptible. But let's go on a little bit and we'll see that in just a, a minute. Philo's view that the origin of sin is human is also described in his book that the worse is wont to attack the better, and passage 122, where he's explaining Genesis 5.29. Now, Genesis 5.29 is when Noah is born, and in the Hebrew, it says that that his name is Noah because he will comfort us from our actions and from kind of the, the sense of the trouble of our hands, min ha'adama asher erara Hashem, from the earth that God cursed. In other words, that he's going to comfort us from the fact that we have to work hard and work the earth. And in the Septuagint, which remember, Philo's reading the Septuagint, he's not reading the Hebrew Bible. So in the Septuagint, it says, 
This one shall give us respite from our labors and from the pains of our hands and from the earth that the Lord God has cursed. So the pains or the trouble of our hands. And how does Philo interpret this? He says, For Moses does not, as some impious people do, say that God is the author of ills. Rather, Moses says that our own hands cause them. Pains of our hands, right? Figuratively describing in this way our own undertakings and the voluntary movement of our thoughts and intentions to what is wrong. So again, he's saying this is what we do. We have chosen to do what is wrong. It's on us. And that's very similar to what we saw in Ben Sira. But this is combined with Philo's role, both as a philosopher and as an exegete, as a biblical commentator, to actually introduce this idea that Plato had of kind of lesser gods. And he does that in his work on the creation. And on the creation 74 to 75, Philo explains a passage which is troubling both in Hebrew and in Greek, which is let us make man according to our image, right? God decides to make man. And he says, let us make man, not right? It's in Hebrew. And it's also translated into Greek. To those who are familiar with the Talmudic passage that describes the Septuagint as not translating the Hebrew that way, right? There's a Talmudic kind of passage that talks about the Septuagint and says that they decided not to translate Nase Adam as let us make man because of the theological problems that could create. We don't have a Greek copy that doesn't have the let us make. The Greek copies that we have say let us make man. It translates it fairly literally. So let us make man according to our image. Now, so in On the Creation 74 to 75, Philo explains that for the creation of mixed natures, quote unquote, of good and evil, such as human beings, God enlisted others to collaborate with him. He just says others. Consequently, any evil decisions or actions don't come from God at all. They come from these other subordinates. And Philo even concludes, he says, it must be that the father is blameless of evil in his offspring. Now, it's very surprising to say he's explaining Nasa Adam. What does it mean, let us make man? We shall make man. Who's the us? And the answer is God and some others because we know that human beings are capable of both good and evil. They have mixed natures. And we've discussed this before. A tiger doesn't do good or evil. It attacks because it's a tiger. That's not that it's evil. It's just a tiger. Whereas people can be good or evil. So people have mixed natures. Therefore, their creation could not just have been from God. And Philo is taking this idea from Plato's Timaeus, where the demiurge calls upon the young gods to help him. Now, Plato says that the creation of mortal and perishable things was done by the young gods. But Philo, Philo is using others to explain moral evil. So in other words, Plato had a problem with how can, if we're all made by like this perfect creator, then why do things wear out? Why do we die? This doesn't make sense. We should all be perfect. And the answer is, well, there were others. There were the young gods and they created what's perishable, what's mortal, what dies. Whereas for Philo, what's the problem? The problem is sin, moral evil. So we need someone to blame for the capability of people to do bad things. Now, he doesn't explain why God would need to create moral evil at all. Like, why would we have to have moral evil in us, right, by anyone? But Philo thinks that an inclination towards sin is inseparable from the human condition. So even a person who is logical is going to end up having a tendency toward evil. So in his book, Who is the Heir of Divine Things, in passage 295, Philo says that without wayward teachers, the soul 
of itself be guilty of evil in its youth. And that's how he's explaining Genesis 8.21, where the idea that people are inclined towards sin even in youth. And remember that Philo is very much always kind of interpreting the Bible, but he interprets the Bible in an allegorical way, just so we understand. As opposed to pretty much all other Jewish interpretation, Philo will say, you know, oh, these seven things are actually the seven traits of blah, blah, blah. He, he, he will use allegorical interpretations as well. In his book on the change of names, Philo describes the inevitable moral failing of humans. And it's despite their reason because they're mixed. So they can't contain the unmixed excellences of God. So a human being will inevitably do evil at some point in his life. So he says, happy is he to whom it has been granted to incline toward the better and more godlike portion for the greater part of his life. For it is impossible to do so throughout the whole of his life. For at times the rival mortal burden turns the balance and lying in wait watches for the right moment and indispositions of reason to forcibly counter. And then what that means is reason isn't strong enough to stop you from sinning. At some point in your life, you're going to sin. So does that mean that if we sin, we shouldn't feel guilty because we can't help it? No, Philo says you're completely responsible. It's going to happen some point in your life and then you can feel guilty as hell, right? <laughs> at some point in your life, you're going to slip. Okay, now there is at least one place. So he says, even for there necessarily remain blemishes congenital to every mortal being, which may well be abated, but cannot be completely destroyed. And what he's saying is you have an inclination toward evil. And on the life of Moses, Philo says, sin is congenital to every created being, even the best, just because they are created. So Philo, once Philo has explained, oh, well, God's not responsible for sin in people. It was some other kind of creators, angels or whatever. There are others, quote unquote. Then he's kind of free to say, well, people are, by the fact that they are created being, they have sin in them. And in fact, this idea of uh, this depiction of humans as innately evil in a manner that's completely separate from God's responsibility is most strongly expressed when Philo's talking about Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. So according to Philo, it's the sin of eating the forbidden fruit that demonstrates the human evil inclination to God. That is, and this is um, also from On the Creation, God didn't realize how bad people were until the Garden of Eden. That's how Philo sets it up. He says, once he, that is God, placed these boundaries in the soul, he proceeded like a judge to observe in which direction it would incline. In other words, he said, don't do this. And then he said, let's, let's see what happens. When he, God, saw it leaning towards cunning and having little regard for piety and holiness from which immortal life results, he expelled it, as might be expected, and banished it from the garden of delights. He did not offer any hope of future return to a soul which was going incurably and irremediably astray. That means God had said, okay, let's see what happens. And then, huh, look at that. Well, out of the garden of Eden for you. So the fact that God now has learned that people do tend toward evil, that's, according to Philo, one of the big reasons for expelling them from the garden of Eden. Not just that they sinned, but that God now sees that humans incline to sin. They're, the humans are just going to sin all the time. So in that case, you don't get to stay in the Garden of Eden. However, if you compare Philo to Plato, right? Plato says that evil doing is, is simply due to the irrational soul. You have a rational soul, you have the irrational soul, and sinning is because of the irrational soul. But Philo, at least in his book on the confusion of tongues, Philo says that the road to evil that you can attribute the road to evil to the reasonable soul. So it's, why would he say that? It seems that 
And going back to what you said earlier, Melissa, it seems that what he wants is to emphasize human responsibility for sin. In other words, don't even blame your irrational soul. You chose to do this, buddy, right? So you might have this inclination towards sin. However, you are completely responsible. But like Ben Sira, Philo was not completely consistent in his approach to sin. He does express a more optimistic view of human tendencies in on the unchangeableness of God. So there he uses Deuteronomy 3015 as kind of a proof text for human freedom of choice. And he explains, he says, so then in this way, he puts before us both truths. First, that men have been made with the knowledge of both good and evil. It's opposite. Secondly, that it is their duty to choose the better rather than the worse because they have, as it were, within them an incorruptible judge in the reasoning faculty, which will accept all that right reason suggests and reject the promptings of its opposite. Now, as opposed to what we read earlier, where he said, at some point, it's not going to be enough. At some point, you're going to sin. Here, he's emphasizing, you have a reasoning faculty. You know the choice between good and evil. You can choose good. That's all you need is the reasoning faculty. You can always choose good. So here, Philo explains that A, because God has bestowed free will on humankind, and B, because all decisions are led by the reasoning faculty, humans should be able to not do evil, right? That's what it sounds like. Sounds like actually their inclination would be then not to do evil. So in a similarly positive vein, Philo elsewhere describes the human soul as having the twins of good and evil at birth, but still tending to the good. So in other words, we do see in Philo certain passages that are emphasizing human righteousness as opposed to his usually pessimistic approach that sees people as inevitably as sinners. So we see that even Philo, with his philosophical approach, is not completely consistent. An exception to Philo's emphasis on free will, though, is found in the context of prayer. And that also takes us, if we if we recall in the last episode of Ben Sira, Ben Sira also, when he was in the, when he was presenting a prayer, Again, you need God's help. And we spoke about that in the last episode, that when you're in the context of a position of prayer, we generally emphasize our helplessness and even our inability to choose. It's all from God. It's kind of part of the genre of prayer. And it comes from the experience of prayer where one is humbling oneself before the deity. And so we see that in Philo also. In his book on drunkenness, passages 125 to 126, Philo describes the need to ask God that you yourself not take the first steps toward evil. He says, pray then to God that you may never become a leader in the wine song. Never, that is, voluntarily take the first steps on the path which leads to indiscipline and folly. But if your prayers are fulfilled, you can no longer remain a layman, but will obtain the office which is the greatest of headships, the priesthood. So what is he saying here? He's saying you need divine assistance to turn away from evil. And this is what we see in the prayer genre all the time. So he's saying, pray to God. If you're praying to God, pray to God that you not voluntarily take the first steps. In other words, you're praying to God that you will not choose to sin, right? Because in prayer, you have to ask God for help. But Philo still says, pray that you don't make the wrong choice, that you don't take those first steps to become a leader in the wine song. Don't drink, or at least don't drink to excess. So, and so we see that Philo also, like Ben Sira, recognizes that in prayer, we ask God to help us against sin. And yet Philo still manages to kind of put choice in there. So what have we seen actually in this episode? It just seemed, first it's 
we can't help it. It's not, so it's not our fault. We have to, we're going to sin anyway. And then it's, but if we sin, it's still our fault. And then it's, but we have the responsibility to choose the right path, but then we can also ask for help. So I'm kind of going back and forth between all of these things, trying to make sense of what his point is. That's the problem. I will say that Philo wrote a lot. So I'm drawing from a lot of different books. I will say that in general, if you just open up one of the major books of Philo and see where he's really addressing it, he seems to be pessimistic. So like that Adam and Eve story, what he said in on creation, that the fact that people sin has to come from something other than God, but people will inevitably sin. Those are ideas that you find a lot more. You have to kind of look for the positive. You have to look for the places where he says, oh, really, a, a reasoning faculty is enough. And that prayer is one little passage. My eyes light up whenever I see someone reference a prayer because I know what that's going to mean. So I'm like, ooh, look, a prayer. I'm going to see how the genre affects the way that they present sin. But you have to do some searching to, to kind of dig it up. So his general approach really is he's pessimistic. His general approach really is it's part of the human condition. We have free choice, but still, we're, it's inevitable that we're going to mess up. Now, what's interesting is that we're going to see similar ideas with different twists in uh, prayer that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, even in 4th Ezra that we're going to talk about, which was written right after the destruction or very soon after the destruction. We're going to see that this idea that humans must tend to sin, yet there is some choice, right? Yet you have full responsibility. These are all these ideas because there's a certain uh, need for responsibility here that we have as part of, and, and again, what's interesting about Philo is he really is, on the one hand, he's taken from Greek thought. On the other hand, he is absolutely a believing Jew who believes in the revelation of scripture, believes in, in the one God, despite what he said about like some others creating the, the moral evil. And so it's very important to maintain responsibility for what you do. You need to have responsibility. You need to distance God from evil. And you have all these pieces that are coming together in his philosophy and in his approach to sin. Do you know if he believes in learning from sin? Like if we make the wrong choice and do something awful, can we learn from it and become better in the future according to him? That's a good question. And while I can't cite a specific work, I believe he would say yes. And I, I believe if, if we opened up and started looking through the books for what, what, what he would say about that, I, I think he would very much say you can learn from things. Absolutely. He wouldn't use that as an excuse to sin. He wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, sin, and then you'll know for next time, or the sin wasn't so bad because now you know not to do it again. That's not Philo, right? Because a sin is a sin is bad. You're not supposed to sin. But I absolutely think that he has this emphasis on the reasoning faculty, that which is what you should rely on. You should always be relying on your reasoning faculty. And that's great. You know, that's very prominent, obviously, in, in Greek thought. But for Philo, it's very important. And really for any Jew even earlier and more Judean who's working with wisdom literature, they're going to say, you know, you should be using your reason. So he's absolutely for using your reason to not sin. And therefore, I'm sure that he would say, yes, if you sin once, you can learn from that and not do it again. It doesn't mean that the next sin is inevitable. He's not seeing sin as determined. In other words, you aren't determined to do this specific action, right? And that's the whole point. Like you may say, well, at some point in my life, I'm going to mess up and sin. However, what you can't say is I'm supposed to do this sin. This, this is inevitable. No, no, no. This sin, any sin that is facing you is not inevitable. Any sin that's facing you, you have a choice. 
And I think that Philo emphasizes that, as Ben Sear would emphasize it. And it's interesting to kind of contrast this idea that there's an inevitability that at some point you're going to mess up, but that inevitability can't be applied to any specific instance where do I sin or not? You can't be like, oh, well, it's inevitable that I sin. No. And that's Philo's point, and that's why you bear full responsibility. So this was an interesting kind of different view of sin. We went a little bit outside of our usual context because almost everything we're going to be talking about in this podcast are really Judean texts. Here we had someone who's coming from Alexandria. He's living in a very established diaspora community where they are reading the Septuagint probably in the synagogue. In other words, they're not really reading even in Hebrew anymore. They're using Greek texts to understand, but they're still very strongly believing and practicing Jews. We're living in a Greek milieu where Philo wants to reconcile it while still remaining a believing Jew. And I emphasize this all the time. It was very important to him to maintain belief in God and revelation, which was far from obvious in a context of Greek thought. And here we see what it brought him to in terms of his understanding of sin. How can it be if it isn't from God? Who created it? What's the story? And what is the human condition really like? And we're going to see this idea of the human condition and what does it mean for the human condition to include sin in later episodes. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. And looking forward to seeing your comments at understandingsin.com and uh, looking forward to speaking to you next time. Take care. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.